Welcome, 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 welcome to the session, Doing Good. Uh, my name's Anne Sherry and I'm chairing the session and I'd like to introduce Professor Peter Singer who's going to be speaking and then we'll be taking questions. Uh, Peter Singer is a moral philosopher who approaches ethical issues from a secular, utilitarian perspective. He's Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University and Laureate Professor at the Centre for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics at the University of Melbourne. He's going to be talking to, his, to us about his new work, The Most Good You Can Do. Please join me in welcoming Peter Singer. Thank you very much, Anne, for that uh, welcome. And uh, I want to thank everybody who organised this event, put it together, and obviously got a great audience to hear about what I think is an exciting topic. Uh, I'm talking about effective altruism, which may not be a, a term that you've heard, although you've obviously heard the two components of it, but it's an exciting new movement of mostly people a lot younger than I am who are interested in changing the world and making it a better place. And for me, this is in a way particularly gratifying because this is something that I've been writing about uh, most of my career in various ways, but uh, going back to one of the first academic articles that I published was an article called Famine, Affluence and Morality back in the early 1970s. Uh, and for a long time, I think that article was regarded as uh, something that was taught in classes because it seemed like a plausible argument and yet the conclusion just seemed too demanding to be true. So it was a good article to teach because you could get your students to, to say, where's the flaw in the argument, uh, since obviously we can't accept the conclusion. And I think what's happened quite recently is that a lot of people have said, well, maybe we can accept the conclusion, or maybe we should accept the conclusion, whether or not we can quite live up to it. That's uh, really what effective altruism is about. So let's move on here. Here's, uh, it now has a Wikipedia page. Um, if you looked at Wikipedia maybe three years ago, you wouldn't have found that. So that's a sign of how new it is. It didn't really exist until, uh, until it got that page. But um, as you see, it's, it's both a philosophy, that is an outlook on uh, philosophy in that broader popular sense about how are you going to live your life, um, a set of values or principles that are going to guide you in living your life. And it's also... Uh, more recently, this emerging social movement, and there's a lot of different uh, websites. There's no single organisation, or there is something that you can go to if you get effectivealtruism.org, but it's, there's a lot of different organisations that would see themselves as all part of the effective altruism movement, and I'm going to be mentioning some of them in a little while. So th that's uh, what it is, but of course that begs the question, well, what is it to improve the world? What are the kinds of things that we would want to be doing to improve the world? And obviously that involves some important questions of value. So here's one view of that. It's not actually mine. Uh, it comes from a blog by somebody called Holden Karnofsky, who uh, I'll mention later on, played an important role in getting effective altruism going. Um, but it's not a quote from him because I've tweaked it a little bit. Uh, so... One of the things is, in talking about uh, what makes the world a better place, it says, effective altruists take a universal perspective. So, although I know this, today's conversation is about things about how do we make Australia a better place, um, one of my answers would be, we shouldn't be worrying too much about making Australia a better place, we should be thinking about making the world a better place, and then we have the question of, well, what's the role within that of focusing on making Australia a better place. What does that mean? But, uh, so look at it more universally. Um, then, okay, so you do look at it universally, but, but what are the values that make things better? And the next line tells you that, um, well, not every effective, altruism, uh, effective altruist would say this, this is the only thing that matters, but I think they would all agree that the well-being of both people, humans, and non-human animals matters. Uh, so it's bad if beings who are capable of suffering do suffer, and it's 
good if beings who are capable of enjoying their lives and living happily do enjoy their lives and live happily. That's pretty obvious, but it's important to get that out there as a basic set of values. Then you can get into further debates about, well, how do we compare the suffering of animals and the suffering of humans? How much does uh, the suffering of animals matter in comparison to the suffering of humans? Those are debates which go on within the effective altruist movement. But effective altruists will generally agree on uh, the first uh, points. And then there'll also be another debate that goes on within the effective altruist movement about how important are things like justice, equality and fairness, those kinds of values. And not just how important are they, but why are they important? So are they important because a society that instantiates justice, equality and fairness is likely to be a society with higher well-being, with, let's say, you know, less repression of minorities and therefore less suffering? Or is it that these things matter intrinsically so that even if you have to actually sacrifice well-being in order to achieve greater equality, that would be worth doing. My, uh, my reading of the effective altruist movement is that most of the people in it would probably say, no, we wouldn't, we wouldn't think that reducing inequality makes the world a better place in and of itself. It would only be if, as a result of that, well-being overall is higher. But some of them may wish to say that these other principles do matter intrinsically. Again, that's not critical to whether you're part of the effective altruist movement. It's a debate that goes on within it. Um, and then uh, I want to just mention this important idea of expected value. Because obviously what we're talking about is various projects that are designed, for example, to reduce suffering or um, I should have mentioned also to uh, extend life. So, for example, to reduce the number of children who die from poverty-related diseases. Uh, those are things that effective altruists would also think of as good. But given that we're talking about projects directed towards the future, clearly with some of them we can have perhaps a high degree of confidence that we will achieve some particular good. With others we can have much less confidence, but perhaps the payoff, if we're successful, would be much greater. So how do we compare those sorts of things? The standard notion here is that of expected value. So this is something that you, you know, if you're inclined to take lottery tickets, it's easy to calculate the expected value of a lottery ticket. If uh, the prize is a million dollars and there are a million tickets being sold, you have a one in a million chance of winning a million dollars, your ticket is worth, the expected value is one dollar. Um, so uh, clearly this can make a difference with, with different projects. You could say, I'm going to contribute to an organisation that distributes bed nets in areas where there's malaria. And there have been very good studies showing that doing that reduces child mortality from malaria. So you could say, if I do this, let's say if I give this much money, uh, then there's a high probability that I will be saving a child's life. Um, on the other hand, there might be other things you can do which have a much lower probability, but if they're successful, would make a much bigger difference. So suppose that we could persuade our government to do something effective about climate change, and that would contribute to other nations joining in the effort so that we would succeed in holding global warming below uh, two degrees Celsius. Well, that would obviously affect millions or perhaps billions of people's lives for the better. So the expected value of that might be high even though the chances of actually making that difference are very low. So those are the kinds of notions that uh, uh, effective altruists will talk about in deciding which causes are the ones to, to, uh, try to try to advance. Okay, now I'm going to talk about some of the people who have been important in the movement so you get an idea of the flavour of people who are doing it. Toby, since we're talking about Australia, happens to be an Australian, um, although he now lives in, in Oxford. Uh, he uh, went there as a, uh, to, do, uh, to do a graduate uh, work, to do his, his uh, Doctor of Philosophy in Philosophy, and uh, while he was doing that, 
he started to think about what he would be able to do throughout his life in terms of making the world a better place. And he thought about it in this way. He was a graduate student. So he was living on a graduate studentship, which I think at the time was around £14,000 a year. And he felt that he was you know, living quite adequately. He was able to cover his, uh, his needs, didn't really feel that he was missing out on anything critical. So just for interest, he thought about, suppose that he is successful in having an academic career, which was a reasonable probability um, given where he was doing his degree and how well he was doing. So suppose he was successful in having an academic career, then obviously he would start getting paid more. But suppose that he actually continued to live on the inflation-adjusted equivalent of his graduate studentship. And that would leave him with the rest of his salary to do something else with, including contribute to a charity that was effectively reducing suffering or improving the world in some way. So Tony, uh, Toby did that calculation, and the charity that he selected was one that uh, prevents people going blind from easily preventable causes like trachoma, or uh, restores sight in people who have cataracts and can't uh, see. These would be people in developing countries, because if you're in Australia or any other developed country, you're extremely unlikely to be blind because of a cataract. It's a pretty simple piece of surgery that uh, you would get provided for by any country with a decent healthcare system. And uh, uh, if you were not in such a country, but you had health insurance, you would obviously get it too. So um, the cost of those procedures is, uh, is pretty low, um, somewhere between $25 to $100. On the figure that Toby used, dividing that into the amount that he would have surplus, he found that he could prevent or cure blindness in 80,000 people. And he thought that that was you know, much more than he had thought that he would be able to do, much more good than he had thought he would ever be able to do for the world. So a vast number of people, you know, a, a big stadium full of people who would be able to see because of what he alone, just one individual, could achieve. And he thought that other people would be interested to know about that. Uh, so he set up a website, which I'll show you in a minute, called Giving What We Can, which essentially puts out that kind of information. And Toby himself decided to pledge to uh, live on uh, slightly more than the um, graduate studentship, but maybe that's, that's just, again, adjusting for inflation. Uh, and is doing that and is giving the rest of it away. Um, as I say, he's, he's not living in a cave or anything like that. He's uh, living a reasonably normal sort of uh, Oxford life, uh, married with a mortgage and a, and, 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 uh, on their own home. So it's possible to do that and uh, make a big difference without really reducing yourself to some level that m most people might find to be difficult to conceive. So... Um, Toby then, Toby's been doing this for slightly under 10 years, I think maybe eight years or something now. So uh, he was one of the people who got other people thinking about this. And here's another one, uh, Will McCaskill, who helped him to found Giving What We Can, also a graduate student at Oxford at the time. Uh, and uh, Will also set up another organisation called 80,000 Hours, which I'm going to tell you about in a moment. And uh, he's got a book coming out of his own called doing good better, which once you've read and absorbed my book, as I'm sure you will do over the coming months, you'll be ready to uh, get his, which will come out in another few months. So what's 80,000 hours about? Um, here's the website. It's about 80,000 hours is the number of hours that you're going to, that most people will spend in their career, some sort of rough average, how many hours people spend working in their career. Um, and Toby thought that people, particularly, uh, sorry, Will thought, young people ought to spend more time thinking about their choice of career, especially if they're thinking about how they can make a positive difference in the world, how they can make the world a better place. Because he thought the information that people were getting on that from careers advisors, for example, was pretty superficial. And a lot of people make this very big decision, which is going to affect so much of their time, 
without giving it very much thought. Well, in what way is the general advice um, not quite adequate? Uh, if you do go online and look at careers advice sort of thing, and if, insofar as it's talking about advising you about a, an ethical career, it's likely to talk about things like uh, working for an NGO, perhaps becoming an aid worker, working for Oxfam, or uh, possibly going to medical school, uh, getting a medical degree, um, then you know, going to Africa and performing these, these surgeries yourself. And Will thought that there was a number of things that were left out. And the one that I'm going to mention, uh, the surprising one, is that he thought what was left out is getting, taking the, choosing the career which will lead to maximising your earnings over your lifetime, which might be something like uh, going into finance, investment banking, uh, something of that sort. Now, why is that going to be an ethical choice? For the simple reason that the more you, you can earn, the more you earn, the more you have to give away. And Will's view is that uh, if you, ha let's say, face a choice between becoming an aid worker and earning a lot of money and giving it to the organisation that you would have worked for, you may be doing more good by earning a lot of money and giving it to that organisation. The reason for that is um, that we should focus on the difference that your choice makes. This is the kind of consequentialist added, uh, implications of effective altruism. The difference that your choice makes. Now, suppose that you see a job advertised by Oxfam for, to be an aid worker, and suppose you take that job. How much good will you do? It's a mistake to think that everything that you do as an aid worker will be something that comes out of that choice which would not have happened otherwise. Because if you had not taken that job, somebody else would have. There's not a terrible shortage of people looking for jobs with reputable aid organisations. It's seen as an interesting career. So the difference that you make by taking that job is only the difference between how much good you do and how much good the second best applicant in the field does. Assuming, of course, that the aid organisation rightly thinks that you're the best application and that there is some difference between you and the second best, which may not be the case, but let's assume that it is, then uh, that's the difference that you've made in this case, that marginal difference between you and the next, what the next best applicant would have done. Now, suppose you take a job as an investment banker and you earn a lot of money and therefore you give away a lot of money. Let's suppose, not too hard to imagine, that you earn enough so that you can give $100,000 to the aid organisation. $100,000 a year, right? Um, so then the aid organisation can create a new position, a new fully salaried position. Maybe it can create two fully salaried positions for $100,000. And the difference that you've made there is the entire difference between that position existing and that position not existing which is likely, even for just one position, to be much greater than the marginal difference you make rather than the next ranked applicant. So that's Will's uh, thinking on this kind of issue. And there are a number of people now who are doing exactly this. One of them was a former student of mine at Princeton. Here he is, called Matt Wager. Um, he was a very good philosophy student, and I'd say at one stage he was definitely headed for an academic career. But after encountering this kind of reasoning, thinking about ethics, he decided uh, that he would go, go to Wall Street. Uh, it was in Princeton, and was well, a lot of Wall Street firms recruit at Princeton for Princeton's top graduate students. Um, so he was offered a position, he took it, and uh, within a year after graduating was able to donate exactly the sum I mentioned, uh, which was approximately half of his total earnings. If you're good in that field, you earn very well, very quickly. Uh, it's now about uh, another two or three years have gone by. Um, I saw Matt uh, just a couple of weeks ago. He's doing the same kind of thing. He's still donating uh, six-figure sums each year to uh, effective charities. Uh, and as mentioned at the bottom, he also helped me to set up uh, another uh, effective altruism organisation called The Life You Can Save, which I'll mention in a moment.
<coughs> so as I say, there are a number of people now, now doing this, and it's an interesting option. Some people are not very comfortable with the idea, but I think if you have the right kind of character, that is, both you have the abilities to get this kind of job, and you have the um, character to withstand the temptations that come with it. Remember, you're working alongside a lot of people who went into this area just because they want to earn a lot of money to spend on themselves. So you have to say to yourself, this is not why I did it. Just because they're driving Porsches or Ferraris doesn't mean that I have to, um, and go on with what you're doing. And as I say, Matt seems to be doing fine at this at the moment. But there are other things you can do. Um, a, a number of people in effective altruism give quite a lot of their income, even though they're at a much lower level of, uh, of earnings. This is uh, uh, Julia Wise, um, who was giving a third of her income even when she was earning less than 40000 a year, um, living in Boston, which is not an inexpensive city. Um, and she has an interesting blog, which uh, you might like to look at, called givinggladly.com, about how to live economically and still give away quite a lot, and uh, why she's doing it and why she, as the title of the blog suggests, why she's enjoying doing it, why it's something worthwhile for her. <clears throat> okay, I want to say a little bit uh, now about um, the choice of the cause that you work for. As I said, people like Matt and Julia are giving large amounts to what they see as effective charities, the charities that are doing the most good to make the biggest difference they can for good in the world. But what are the causes that we might choose? The philanthropy sector, I think, has not really tried very hard to get us to think about what are the best uh, causes. In fact, in some cases, they've actually dissuaded us from really thinking about that. And I want to give you one example of that. This is an organisation called Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors. It's one of the biggest philanthropy advisors in the United States. Uh, it's advised billions of dollars worth of donations to charities from people with money who want to use it effectively. And if you go online, you find uh, this slide talking about how to give. Um, and uh, you find a series of online booklets, of which here's another one finding your focus in philanthropy, which sounds like it should be doing exactly what I was talking about, tell, trying to tell you how to think about what's the best cause you can give for. But in fact, it really doesn't. Um, it actually opts out of that by just saying there's obviously no objective answer to that question. Well, is that really so obvious? Um, and it then describes a whole lot of different things that you might do, as if to say there's no objective answer to which is better. So here's one comparison that it makes. It talks about Ted Turner, who back at the, uh, in 1998 gave a billion dollars to the United Nations to scale up proven healthcare programs to reduce killer diseases that shorten life, particularly uh, affect children in developing countries. And um, it's estimated that those programs that Ted Turner funded, some of which have later been further funded by Gates and others, um, have saved lives at the cost of $80 per life saved. Um, that doesn't mean, by the way, that donating to these programs today will save life as cheaply as $80 per life saved, because I think what happens when you set up these programs is you pick the low-hanging fruit first. You go into the areas where the diseases are most prevalent, where the highest death rate is, where you can reduce them for the fewest resources. And once you've done that, it gets a little bit harder and a little bit more costly. But these killer diseases are still killing children, though fortunately not as many as they used to. Um, and uh, so that's, I think, clearly an example of highly effective altruism. But more or less alongside that, and without any comment, the uh, Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors give this example of Lucille Packard, who set up a children's hospital in Palo Alto. Palo Alto, if you're not familiar with it, is where Stanford University is. It's in Silicon Valley. Uh, when I checked it, it was the third wealthiest community in the United States. Um, and so you set up a hospital there, the cost of saving a life is going to be vastly greater. And the hospital will do things like this. It will separate conjoined twins at a cost of between one and two million dollars for the operation. Not, in fact, the full cost because some additional funds for bringing the children 
from Costa Rica, came from another charity. So my view would be that if you're comparing different causes and one of them is donating to a charity which is helping to save lives of extremely poor people at $80 per life saved or even at $1,000 per life saved and another one is saving lives or doing procedures which um, help children at a cost of over a million dollars for the one procedure, I think it's clearly better to save uh, a large number of lives for a million dollars than to save one life or better also than to separate conjoined twins. So I think it's obvious that in this sort of case there is an objective answer and that is that generally speaking it's objectively better to do more good with any given quantity of resource and uh, you do that typically by helping to reduce poverty in developing countries rather than by helping in affluent communities. It seems a very simple concept uh, that we all apply everywhere in our life except in philanthropy. So, for example, if somebody told you, let's say you're in the market for a new dishwasher, and someone said, you can buy brand A, which will cost you $5,000, or you can buy brand B, which will cost you $500, and by the way, brand B actually washes dishes better than brand A, no one's going to say, oh, well, there's no objective difference between the two, I might as well buy brand A. But it seems like when we get philanthropic, we do start to think along these lines. Okay, here's another example, different sort of comparison, um, but this is just a very recent one that was in the papers uh, a month or so ago. David Geffen is uh, an entertainment mogul who, uh, when you see the DreamWorks logo and you go to the movies, he's behind DreamWorks and a few other things. So he recently gave $100 million to renovate the main concert hall at the Lincoln Centre in New York City, main site for opera and concerts, classical music. Uh, if any of you have been there, you may have been to what was called the Avery Fisher Hall. Well, it's not going to be called the Avery Fisher Hall very much longer. It's about to become the David Geffen Hall. Um, but another interesting thing about this is the $100 is not even paying the full cost of the renovation. So there was some debate. The cost of the renovation, according to the Lincoln Centre, will be half a billion dollars. So there was some debate as to whether he should be able to get the naming rights for a mere $100 million. But, um, uh, you know, wh whether it's $100 million or $500 million, again, it just seems very obvious to me that there are better things you could do with your money. Let's go back to the example that Toby Ord uh, had. You can treat trachoma, uh, the leading cause, I said, of preventable blindness. Um, and uh, there are various studies that have costed the, the uh, cost of, of each case of blindness prevented. You, you treat all the children in an area, they're not all going to get trachoma, so it's not just the cost of the treatment, you have to uh, multiply that by how many cases you need to treat to prevent a case of blindness. But the estimates are roughly in that sort of ballpark. Um, there's an Australian organisation that is doing this kind of thing, Fred Hollows Foundation. There are also other uh, overseas, uh, other foundations that are doing it in other places. So if, let's say it's $100, go for the upper end of this range. Is it better to restore a concert hall for wealthy Manhattanites and international tourists who appreciate the music that is being, they can hear there? Or is it better to prevent a million people from going blind? Uh, again, it seems to me pretty obvious that there is an objective answer to that question. And it's not just a matter of saying, well, you know, if you're passionate about music, then this is what you should do, which is essentially the approach that Rockefeller Philanthropy Associates takes. <clears throat> now, some people will say on that, well, you know, why can't we do both? Um, and this is a recent example of, of somebody making that comment. Uh, Nicholas Kristof, who writes a column in the New York Times, uh, had a column that was uh, partly about my book and partly about uh, Matt Wager, that's the trader who donates half his pay, the one I just showed you. Um, and somebody uh, commented on it, well, you know, why can't we do both? It's a false choice that um, I'm trying to force you. But I can't see that it's a false choice. I mean, it's true probably that David Geffen, if he wanted to, could give another 100 million to prevent trachoma, but is he going to do that? 
And if he does do that, why wouldn't he give the whole 200 million to prevent trachoma, assuming that there are enough people out there who uh, need to be treated to prevent it? And whether it's trachoma or something else rather like it, certainly we are still short of resources to help people in extreme poverty. Um, and uh, even the Gates Foundation, which has much larger resources from Gates himself and from Warren Buffett, does, um, does not have the resources to eliminate all of those killer diseases that kill children or treat all those cases of blindness. Uh, I should say, though, that uh, we are making progress on these issues. In case some people think, well, you know, does this work? We've always had poor people with us. Aren't we always going to have poor people with us? I think it's encouraging to see that uh, the number of children who die before their fifth birthday from preventable poverty-related causes has been steadily falling since the 1960s. Um, so in the 1960s, it was around 20 million children each year dying from preventable poverty-related causes before their fifth birthday. Today, even though the world's population has more than doubled since the 1960s, the, figure, the current figure is 6.3 million. So it's down to a third of what it was, and as a proportion of the world's population, it's even much less still, given that the population has increased. So we are making progress on these issues, but we still have significant scope to go further. Uh, I do want to make sure you have plenty of time for questions, but I'm just going to do one more section here, uh, which is about how do we assess the effectiveness of not just different large-scale causes, but um, how do we assess the effectiveness of particular organisations? Because that's something else that matters a lot to effective altruists. They want to know that the individual charity that they're giving to is going to make the best possible use of their money. And uh, I showed you before a slide, a blog written by Holden Karnofsky. Holden is the co-founder with Ellie Hassenfeld of this organisation, GiveWell.org. And it's an interesting story as to how this organisation came into existence. Again, not very long ago. Holden and Ellie were working for a hedge fund in the uh, early 2000s, in the days before the global uh, financial crisis, when people working for hedge funds were making lots of money. So they were in their 20s, and they were making a lot more money than they'd expected to be making in their 20s, and they were working with a number of other people of, of their age. And so they said, you know, we should be giving some of this money away. And people said, yeah, good idea. We've got more than we really need. So where should we give it to? And various charity, names of various charities popped up. And so they said, look, why don't we each write, I think there are about eight of them, why don't we each write to our favourite charity and ask them for information about what they would do with a substantial donation so that then we can see which one is going to do the most good. So they did that. Remember, these were people who, people who worked for hedge funds. They were very used to analysing lots of data about different corporations that their fund might invest in, that sort of thing. And they were probably expecting some reasonably hard data to come back. But if you've had information from charities, you can guess what they did get back. They got some nice glossy brochures with pictures of smiling kids um, and really no data, no statistical information, no cost per life saved or cost per sight blindness prevented or anything of that sort. Um, they were surprised by that and disappointed and they tried harder. They said, okay, we'll actually call the organisations, we'll tell them that we're not just going to give them 50 or 100 dollars, we're wanting to give them perhaps tens of thousands of dollars and surely then they'll produce the information for us. That didn't work either. Essentially, it seemed that the organisations themselves didn't really have that information. So Holden and Ellie decided that this was a significant vacuum, that uh, if they couldn't get the information, it seemed like nobody in the US was donating on the basis of real good data about which charities were most effective. And yet in the United States, charity is a $335 billion industry. It's 2% of gross domestic product. Very large. And here were people giving this vast amount of money, you know, just to give you an idea of the size, US official foreign aid 
is in the low 20s of billions, right? So we're talking about 15 times as much money as the US government gives in foreign aid. And people were doing it, it seemed, without any real data as to which organisations they should be giving it to. So Holden and Ellie decided that they would go into this and set up an organisation to do it. And the other members of the group gave them some financial support to get them going. And this is the website that you can look at. Um, it's, it's geared more to the US, so you won't find um, much about Australian charities on it, unfortunately. Uh, as you see, it's reviewed a lot of charities and ends up recommending very, very few. But that doesn't mean that all of these in this grey area are not doing good. It simply means they haven't been able to get the data they need to find out whether or not they're doing good. And it's only a small number that they have been able to get that data from now um, or data from independent evaluators of those programs, which gives them a better idea of which of the organisations where there really is clear demonstrable evidence that they're doing a lot of good. So that's a good website to look at, but some people think that actually it's too strict, too rigorous, and that's why they've got so few organisations. But um, there are only some things that you can get that kind of data for, really. So, for example, if you are distributing bed nets, as I said, you can get that data. Um, if you are doing things uh, like treating intestinal parasites in school children, which has been shown pretty clearly to, to lead to them staying at school longer and performing better in school, you can get that data. Because in all these cases, you can compare places where you're not doing the intervention with places where you are doing the intervention, a randomised trial, and uh, you can see how much difference it makes. If you look at larger, more diverse organisations, the Oxfams, Save the Children, uh, and so on, um, it's harder because they do a lot of different things. And some of what they do is advocacy work, which is more like the example I gave you before about climate change. It's more like um, hoping that you'll make a huge difference, but not knowing really whether you will. So um, there are a couple of other organisations uh, that have a broader view, and I mentioned The Life You Can Save, which sort of spun off an earlier book of mine, and uh, we have a rather broader list um, of the different organisations that are worth giving to, including uh, a couple of Australian ones on that list. So I do want to allow time for questions, and I think we're starting to get uh, close to that. So I'm going to leave that at this time, and I look forward to your questions. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Um, I'm going to start, and if people want to come to the microphones, uh, I'll see you as the lights come on. So many questions. If only the world was such a simple place that we could rationally work out all the things that we do in our lives. So I guess my first question is, if there's such a thing as effective altruism, does that mean the rest of it's ineffective? Uh, no, it means the rest of it has not been demonstrated to be effective. Um, so I think there is a lot of altruism that is not very effective. Um, and uh, there is some that may be effective, but it's hard to know. And there is some that is effective. Um, but really, I do think the differences are huge. I mean, as I said, you can restore someone's sight for roughly around $100. That seems to be a pretty good figure. Um, another thing that you might do to help people who are blind is get them a guide dog. Training a guide dog, these are people in developed countries, training a guide dog is, is expensive, it takes a long time. Um, at least in the US, I, I can't speak about Australia, in the US it costs uh, over $40,000 to train a guide dog and to train the, the blind person to use the guide dog. So if you can restore someone's sight for $100 or you could spend $40,000 giving someone a guide dog, you know, it's, it's re effectiveness is relative. One thing is, I think, a lot more effective than the other. So in terms of Australia, and I mentioned to you before we came on stage, I've done a lot of work in Indigenous communities. And in fact, Fred Hollow started his work in, uh, a lot of his early work in Aboriginal communities in Australia. So there are many developed countries that also have big poverty groups who need support as well. Would you see, as you look at the Australian landscape, what would you see as effective giving in an Australian landscape? Well, you, you're probably not going to like this answer, but I think giving uh, overseas is more effective. Um, that's not to say that there aren't people in poverty in Australia, but the poverty tends to be a relative poverty compared to other Australians. So everybody in Australia can get free health care. You know, obviously, there are lots of people in the world 
who can't get free healthcare. Everyone in Australia gets some social support. The amount of social support that everyone is entitled to get greatly exceeds the uh, roughly in Australian dollars, let's say $2 a day, that uh, is the World Bank's line for extreme poverty, and there are about a billion people living below that line. So it's not that I, I'm not sympathetic for people in poverty in Australia, but it's just much more expensive to bring them out of poverty because they're already, they've already got that degree of social support. Um, and to help them further is going to cost you many thousands of dollars rather than the much smaller amount that you can do elsewhere. And how, I'm not ignoring you, just one more, as I follow that thought along. Um, when you think about the politics of poverty, uh, and you think about national governments who are um, both aid givers to help support world, uh, reducing world poverty, but actually are accountable to an, a, lo a local electorate. How do you think you sell the idea that it's rationally better to ignore your local poor? Uh, well, I'm, I, was, I, I was addressing individuals here. I was addressing everybody in this room and every reader of my book and other people that I can reach. I'm not really telling governments that they should put the majority of their resources to helping reduce global poverty or helping the poor. Um, I mean, obviously, they're just not going to get re-elected if they do that. And uh, if this, governments... By all of these people. Well, um, maybe this is a more enlightened audience who would re-elect them. Um, but um, we know that the majority of the population would not re-elect them. And if you do have a government that is concerned to do good, and that's obviously a question I know you're going to be discussing in a later session today, um, some of the problems with politics, but if you were to have such government, it, it's reasonable for it to say, you know, we want to be re-elected. We, we don't want to be a one-term government and have every good thing that we did undone uh, in three years' time. So I think you have to look at, at those realities. But what each one of you individually is going to do with your spare resources is a question that actually is within your control. Microphone one. Hi, Peter. Um, my question is about uh, a lot of Australians think about effective charities as being charities that spend 90% or more of their money on the ground and less on administration and other costs. However, based on what you said about the 2% that Americans donate to charity, which I believe hasn't changed in about 100 years, if charities actually wanted to grow that sector, the logic would be to spend more money on marketing, pay higher wages, uh, education, PR, anything, so if they could spend less of that 90% on the ground and more on growing the whole size of the pie, that would seem to make sense. Would that be more effective? Yes, it would be more effective if, if you do succeed, if you have reason to believe that you can succeed in growing the pie. Um, I think the idea, I'm glad you brought up this point about you know, how much goes to administration and how much goes to programs, because that kind of information was out there before uh, Holden and Ellie started GiveWell. But when you think about that, um, it doesn't really tell you very much, right? Suppose that people want say, I'm only going to give to a charity that doesn't spend more than 10% on administration and, and fundraising. Okay, so what is a charity going to do then if it wants to receive your donation? It's got to get rid of a lot of its staff, presumably, if it's currently spending more than 10%, and then it'll bring the administration under 10%. But now it doesn't have the staff to go and decide which are the best programs, which are the most effective programs that it should be supporting. And it doesn't have the staff to monitor those programs afterwards and get proper evaluation. So sure, 90 cents in every dollar you give are going to programs, but it's quite possible that the programs are more or less useless. Whereas another organisation that didn't fire its staff, that has 20 or 30% in administrative costs, maybe only 70 cents in every dollar you give goes to the programs, but the programs are all very effective. So clearly, the, the, the figure that goes to administration is not telling you much. Now, you also raised another interesting question, which is a lot of people will say, I won't give to that charity. Somebody else said this at another meeting. I'm not gonna, my policy is I never give to a charity that pays its CEO more than $250,000. People think, well, fair enough. Why should I give if somebody's earning that much? But, you know, you might be talking about a charity that has got a revenue and expenditure of $100 million. I mean, you can tell me in the corporate sector how many companies of that size are going to be getting away with paying their CEOs less than a quarter of a million dollars, right? They just won't get the people who can run the company really well for less than that. And, uh, you know, that, that's, if you want that kind of ability, then those people can earn a lot more in the private sector. 
even at a quarter of a million or even at, you know, three or four hundred thousand, they're probably taking a big pay cut over what they could be getting. So it's not that they're not making any sacrifices. So I think you, you do need to be prepared to spend in order both to make sure that the pie grows, as you were saying, and to make sure that the charity is run as well as it possibly can be. Do you think there's more than one way of thinking about what is rational? I mean, you've des you describe rationality... Actually, in a way, you know, lots of businesses describe rationality. If I can see a return on investment, uh, there's a very rational way of looking at this. However, if I'm, you know, if I've got a member of my family, for example, who needs a guide dog, you know, my view about where my dollar is rationally spent might actually be quite different to a sort of almost cold view or a corporate view of rationality. It almost feels as though you're describing a single view of rationality when I'm not sure there is such a thing. Okay, well, I... You're I a wanna... philosopher. Tell us about that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, firstly, though, I want to, I want to uh, object to the word, word cold here because, um, you know, you can be motivated by your empathy and concern for people suffering from blindness or people who... Parents who watch their child succumb to malaria. Um, and you may say, you know, yeah, I really feel with those people and I want to do as much as I can to stop that happening. I, I don't think... Uh, I think it's unfair to say it's cold. Now, it is true, as I said, that it's universal and therefore um, it is saying that, yes, we would understand people who would say, well, you know, this is my family or something like that, of course I'm going to give them some degree of priority. Um, pretty much everybody would. But um, that's distinct, I think, from what you're doing charitably. So if you say, yeah, you know, just as I might want to spend money to take my family on, on a holiday, so of course I would want to spend more to make members of my family who are ill to give them the best possibility of recovery or whatever that might be, if it does take some expenditure, if it's for some reason not covered by the healthcare system. Um, so we, would do, we, we can do all those things, but I think we ought to be thinking universally for at least part of what we're doing. And, and that's the kind of rationality that I'm talking about. So the, the kind of rationality you're talking about is one that sort of starts from my feelings or desires um, and says, well, you know, because I love so-and-so, then it's rational for me to spend more on them. Um, and that's an interesting philosophical debate, whether, you know, rationality does start with feelings which are not themselves rational or whether you can criticise some feelings as being less rational than others. We probably don't have time to no, get that, deeply into that We won't go one. there, but anyway, even though I invited you to... Um, Number two, yes. Sorry, I'll come back to you at number one. Uh, Peter, Jan Ryan from the Creative Music Fund. I'm really interested in... You are discussing things from which we can have data and see results. And I think that's... It's very easy to see results when you look at it like that. But there are other um, areas that I haven't um, felt that I've got a sense of, of whether your ideas... Um, can be validated or not, and that's in funding culture. Now, you spoke a minute, just a minute ago, about the belief that you may have in something and that may not be rational. But if you're funding music or you're funding poetry or you're funding dance or something um, like that, uh, it's very hard to get data, or is it, is a question. And if we were, what kind of data would we be looking for for things that are often seen perhaps irrationally um, but nonetheless important like beauty or pleasure or, you know, the kind of uselessness uh, of some of these things that Piers uh, Rickman spoke about in his Boyer a few years ago, the value of things not being able to be seen to have clear results. Is there a way of turning that around and getting some sense of what we're investing in if we invest in a cultural product, for example? Thank you. That's a, that's a very good question. Um, what you would need to get data on, I think, is the extent to which putting money into these cultural activities um, makes a difference over what the culture, level of cultural activities would be if you were not putting money into them. Because I think that the creative artistic spirit is something that will manifest itself with or without significant financial support. Um, I mean, we know that art exists across the whole range of cultures. Art exists where it's not commercial. Obviously, again, with indigenous art, although it has become more commercial, it existed for thousands of years before it was commercial at all. Um, we know that people produced art and music in the concentration camps. So this is something that, that is clearly an important part of 
the human spirit, if you want to put it that way. Um, and to that extent, I encourage its expression. But if you have a choice between donating to support those cultural activities and donating to support saving lives or restoring sight or um, uh, enabling kids to stay longer at school, um, I, think it's, I, I actually think it's pretty hard to make the case for supporting the arts. I'm, I'm sorry if you're from that, that area. But, um, but I think that, that that's a difficult task. I think if you wanted to make that case, you would have to try to show that without the funding you're getting, there would be some important loss in well-being without it. And, and I, I'm not aware of that data. If, if, if it's out there, I'd really like to know about it, but Louise, I'm not aware of it. Louise, can you answer that question? Well, I just actually want to say... This is the CEO say, of Sydney Opera House, you. by the way, our host. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, very, thank you very much for coming, Peter. And I honestly didn't put Jan up to that. <laughs> but the reason that we are here today is because we have a group of philanthropists called the Idealists who fund ideas at the house. So the reason that you are here in this mighty building giving this talk is because our philanthropists have enabled this whole discussion to take place as we do other ideas at the house. So that's number one. Thank you. The, the implication of that, though, is that you should fund more discussions and less opera. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's much cheaper. Opera is run by Opera Australia and the Opera House doesn't contribute to it. Oh, OK. <laughs> but my second point is that the reason that what we want to do is to create a more enlightened society, which is why we have the Carnegie Conversations, and the fact of being able to do it in a place that is a magnificent building, if we allow this place to become a mausoleum, which doesn't have all the technology that is required to be able to do what we need to do to put your and other very valid ideas out there, then we will be a poorer society and we will not have a society that thinks about the things that you're thinking about. So whilst I think your ideas are great, I think the either-or is slightly narrow. Well... <laughs> I mean, I, I appreciate the, the... You know, there's an irony in the fact that I'm uh, a professor at Princeton, which is also funded by alumni who make large donations. And the book The Most Good actually started life as a series of lectures that I gave at Yale. Um, and the, the donor who had endowed those lectures was there and we had dinner afterwards and he basically made somewhat similar points. And I, I, I said to him, well, I thought on this particular occasion, that is because the committee that he'd endowed had invited me to speak, he'd got good value for his money. <laughs> but, um, you know, he couldn't guarantee that that was going to happen every time. So, I, look, I, I, total, I totally think that... Um, I, t I totally think that it is really important to have ideas out there and I do appreciate you creating this forum and I appreciate the, the donor uh, having created this, this particular forum for discussion and ideas. Um, yeah, I, I think that's very valuable um, and I hope that that will continue to thrive and if you use this building for these uh, functions, then I hope that there'll be a lot of good ideas put out there in future. So it is rational, Louise. Thanks. <laughs> One, yeah. Um, I was actually that aid worker in my 20s but now in my 40s, um, I'm one of Louise's idealists. So I probably earn more money now and I'm able to give as a philanthropist. But I was going to ask the earlier person the same question. But if we, if we moved it from the arts and looked at, say, politics or the environment or advocacy, I mean, do you have the same argument about the sort of return on investment? Aren't they all... And if we didn't fund those things, what would the implications be for our community? Yeah, well, I mean, those are the ones, um, you know, politics and advocacy are the ones that have um, the high payoff and, and the lower probability. So they may actually offer good expected value. I mean, take uh, Will McCaskill himself, who um, I showed before, who started the 80,000 Hours. He's, um, he's actually is pursuing an academic career. Uh, he's not gone into finance. The reason he's pursuing an academic career is not because he thinks that there's such great intrinsic value in producing works of philosophy, but because it gives him time to be an advocate for causes that he thinks are important. So his view is that if you are in the right position and the right person who can be a good advocate for an important cause, then that's very much a worthwhile thing to be doing. Uh, and as I said, for example, with climate change, uh, that's clearly something that is going to be critical for centuries to come. So if you're an advocate 
for doing something about climate change, or if you're going into politics to try to do something about climate change, uh, those are going to be worthwhile things. They're going, to, they're going to be the high payoff, low probability things that may very well be worth doing, because governments obviously can have a big influence. So I would not try to dissuade somebody from having that sort of career at all. So would it be better to have a world with a bit of disease and keep Mozart? <laughs> you know, I, I don't think we're ever going to lose Mozart. I mean, somebody has also said, you know, in regard to the David Geffen gift of the renovation for the uh, concert hall. Um, you know, if you, if you didn't renovate concert halls, it didn't mean that we wouldn't hear Mozart anymore. It would mean that we perhaps had less professional, less well-equipped symphony orchestras, but we would still have people who were passionate about Mozart and wanted to play it, um, whether, they were getting, whether they were doing it as fully professional or whether they were doing it as, as amateurs after their day job. There's another question here at one. Um, I actually work for the Fred Hollis Foundation, so thanks for the plugs. Um, <laughs> um, we, uh, this has been a bit of a dinner party conversation recently. We work in Nepal, but we're not an aid, aid organisation, so we're not fundraising based around the, the Nepal earthquake. It will mean that our tax appeal takes a big hit because Australians are very generous in a crisis. We have a competitor who does work in aid, but they, have, they will not be working in the Nepal earthquake but they have rebranded their website and they're very much going out on the Nepal earthquake. So ethically, is it better to um, fundraise so you get more money and can then distribute that money effectively like the Fred Hollis Foundation or is it better to give to this organisation because uh, I suppose they're, they're going to get more money out of this um, but are they going to spend that more effectively in the long run? Well, you, you haven't told me what they're going to do with it, but it sounds like it, it sounds as if, if they're raising money on the basis of the Nepal earthquake and they're not spending it in Nepal, they're raising money under false pretenses. And that's the kind of thing that actually, you know, in the short term may raise more money, in the long run destroys the credibility of, of aid organisations. Yeah. Then so, legally they're allowed to, though, because they put a little disclaimer at the bottom of it. <laughs> so this is, this is the question of the ethics, because people do give more to a crisis in Australia. Yeah. That's just the fundraising landscape. So they do. Um, um, and, you know, whether what they're doing is legal is one question, whether it's ethical is another question. It sounds to me like it's, like it's not. But, but the other thing that I would say is, as you say, people give more in a crisis. And that actually quite often means that they're giving in a way that is less effective than if they're giving to an organisation that is there all the time, um, whether it's, you know, like Fred Hollows, preventing people going blind, or whether it's um, reducing the burden of disease in... in different countries. Um, because a lot of money floods in, uh, it's then sometimes harder for those organisations to really spend it effectively. Uh, we've seen this, I, I can't say anything about Nepal at the moment, it's, it's too young, but we've, we've seen it in Haiti, where a lot of money went into Haiti after the earthquake, partly because it's close to the United States and there's a Haitian community there, and so uh, very large amounts of money went in, and, and studies subsequently showed that it was not all well spent. Um, so I think you actually you know, you, you do better, really, to give to the organisations that are there doing, doing things all the time rather than to emergency relief. Now, I know there's someone else standing at the microphone, but we are actually out of time, so I'd encourage you to grab Peter upstairs. Um, can I just say in summary, um, I think this area is, uh, uh, is an interesting way of looking at the idea of giving. Uh, it appear, there's an appeal, instant appeal to the rational part of my brain, that says you find the organisations that give you your biggest bang for your buck. There's another part of my brain that says there's a whole lot of other stuff I know I give money to that probably doesn't meet your test. So I'm not sure it's an either or. And uh, what I would say, though, is that if this encourages people who would not normally have given money to think about it more rationally and contribute some of their excess income to doing good work, then that's got to be a good thing particularly in the context of Australia, where we've been characterised globally as being a little on the mean side of the givings curve. Well, yeah, let me uh, just say... We but maybe mean but effective is where we want to be. Well, yeah, <laughs> but actually, you know, since you've mentioned that, the, the, with the cuts to aid that is coming in the coming budget that have been foreshadowed, we are going to be really in a deplorable situation of giving... Um, I think it's going to be something like 0.23%, 23 cents in every $100. Mm. Now, the United Kingdom has just got to the 
UN target of, of 0.7%, 70 cents, I think they're at 72 cents in every $100. Does anybody think the United Kingdom is twice as wealthy as we are? Mm. Put your hand up if you do. I don't think anybody does. I mean, it's, it's really, I think, disappointing that uh, we're not going along with, with those nations that are saying, yes, we haven't been giving enough and we should be giving more. Good. Well, that's a nice way to end it. Thank you all for your involvement. <laughs>